How many of you have ever had one of your kids come home from school with some kind of big project that they are supposed to do? Raise your hand if you've got a kid that's come home from school with one of those. Let's, can we just be very honest this morning about this, parents? Uh, those kids don't do the projects. We do the projects. Can we just say that? Can we agree with that? Now, some of you got, can we agree with that? Yes. Okay, good. There's no way on earth that kids can do these projects. It's, it's mostly our, our work. And those of you who, are in, who, who have kids that aren't in school yet, uh, just get prepared because these projects are coming your way. And I'm going to tell you something. After, after having three kids that have gone through you know, elementary, junior high, and high school, I finally realized that these projects are how teachers get revenge on parents. Those of you who are teachers here today, raise your hands. Come on. Raise your hands. Be, yeah, be, do it. Yeah. I'm right about this, aren't I? This is how you get revenge. Uh, You're just mad that you're locked in a small room with our kids all day while we get to be out working and talking with other adults. I know that's what it is. One day, uh, my oldest son came home with a project when he was in high school that his physics teacher had assigned for us to do together. This teacher, though I had never met him, was clearly an angry, evil man. Can't remember all the details of the project, but it involved building a small car. There were levers and springs and rubber bands, maybe ketchup, maybe dry ice. I don't remember exactly all that was involved. And when you pulled a lever that you had put onto the car, the car had to roll a certain number of meters for the project to pass. I looked at the instructions that this hideous demon teacher had given... And I knew instantly I wasn't up to the task. Sadder still, my son watched me read the instructions, and he said, we need to find me another dad very quickly, don't we? (laughs) Yes, son, we do. We need to find that. that. I tell you that story because I just want to tell you from the outset this morning that I'm in a very similar situation today. After studying the passage that we're going to look at this morning, after studying it all week long, I can assure you that I am not up to the task of unlocking its truth to you. In fact, I'll just be honest, if I had a whole year to prepare, I still wouldn't be up to the task. And I, I would even tell you that I'm not even worthy to attempt this task because it's such holy ground that we're going to be standing on today. For those of you who are visiting with us for the first time, maybe... Maybe you're listening to our podcast, Welcome. We are almost at the very end of a series that we've been doing from the last half of the Gospel of Mark on the last days of Jesus. And if you have a Bible of any kind, whether it's a hard copy or a digital copy, if you would, uh, just turn with me to the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, Mark chapter 15, verse 33, Mark chapter 15, verse 33. And while you're finding that, I want to just give you some context. It is Friday of Holy Week. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish people are in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Jesus is on the cross, and he has been there for three hours now. Over the last 24 hours, Jesus has been betrayed, abandoned, denounced, denied, denuded, and derided by the Roman government, by Israel's religious leaders, by his own disciples, by anyone else that was present. What I want to do is I want to read all six verses that uh, we're going to be looking at this morning. I'll comment uh, comment on them in just a moment. But because of the nature of this passage, I'm sorry to ask you to do this again. I know it's hard to get up and get down through service like this, but I think it would be appropriate for 
those of you who can at least, to stand for the reading of this particular passage of Scripture. Please stand. Mark chapter 15, verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah, they probably misunderstood uh, Jesus' cry because he was speaking in Aramaic, and so they, they thought that he was calling Elijah, and the reason that they thought he might be calling Elijah was that Elijah was commonly believed to be kind of the patron, uh, the patron saint of lost causes. So they thought Jesus was asking Elijah to save him. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. You can be seated. The way I want to approach this passage this morning is by looking at three of the significant moments that Mark really highlights in this passage. We'll start with the cry, then we'll look at the curtain that was torn, then we'll come back to something that Mark mentions in the very beginning of these verses, the darkness. So we'll go the cry, the curtain, and then we'll come back to the beginning, the darkness, okay? Starting with the cry... Mark tells us, uh, both in verse 34 and in verse 37, that Jesus cried out with a loud cry. I believe that both of those verses are referring to the same cry when Jesus said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I would suggest this morning that there are people here who can identify right now with this cry from Jesus. The word that's translated forsaken is the Greek word in katalepo, which means to be rejected by someone. It means to have someone refuse to even acknowledge you. Like they won't even look at you. They won't, they won't even acknowledge that they know you. And I would, I, I think that there, I believe that there are people here this morning that feel that from God. Like he's rejected you. He's forsaken you. Like it's like he doesn't even know you. That he's left you utterly alone and to deal with whatever it is that you're going through by yourself. Maybe you just lost someone uh, that you love and you feel utterly alone. And it's like God provides no relief to you from your grief. Maybe you're going through a divorce today. Maybe, maybe you just live in a, in a very lonely marriage. Maybe you're just in one of those places where you feel like, The very real presence of God that you used to feel, like when you first believed, maybe you just feel like that's gone, and it has been gone for a long uh, time. And so you could very well, and maybe you have, said the exact same thing that Jesus says here on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And having felt that sense of uh, forsakenness before myself, I can tell you what, what often happens. You begin to look inward for the cause. 
don't you? Like you begin to think to yourself, well, it must be because I, and then you could kind of fill in the blank. Like it must be because, well, I told a lie the other day, or because I didn't give enough money at, at church, or because I looked at that woman the other day and fantasized about her later on, whatever. But you just begin to look inside and you begin to try to figure out, what is it that I've done that has caused this thing to happen and that has caused God to abandon me? That's what happens. You begin to do that. Uh, when I was a, a kid, like very young, like, like first grade young, some adult who was uh, trying to get me to behave told me that if I didn't behave well enough, that God would take my mom away from me. Like, like she would die, right? And, uh, you know, as you can imagine, it was traumatizing. And that idea of a terrible God was reinforced over and over and over by my own family's understanding of religion, that, that God was, you know, I, I kind of grew up with this idea that God was very mean, and that if I didn't appease him, he would cause very bad things to happen to me and maybe to the ones I love. And that idea stuck with me, I will tell you, well into my adulthood. And it's kind of a miracle in and of itself, of course, that I became a follower of Christ after being told that as a kid, but it's, I think, an even greater miracle that I became a pastor. And sometimes I think that maybe the only reason I became a pastor was to keep anyone that I could from ever having to experience the torture of that kind of thinking about God. Even after I learned that that wasn't remotely true, that that wasn't remotely Christian thinking, I will tell you that even as a follower of Christ for many, many years, when bad things came into my life, I still felt like God was punishing me for something. And that, like, whatever it was, that he was leaving me completely alone in those times to dig myself out of whatever problem that he had brought into my life because of my wrongness. It was like, you made your bed, pal, now lie in it. That's the way that I kept... I knew that God, that wasn't true about God, but I felt that was true. And if you feel that way this morning, I just want to, I want to point you to Jesus here on the cross. In this moment, when Jesus cries, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, Jesus is experiencing a cosmic abandonment the like of which no one in human history has ever experienced and ever will experience. In some sense that we cannot fully comprehend, Jesus has become sin as he's on the cross. And sin, of course, can never exist in the presence of God. And so the reason that Jesus is crying this out is that the intimacy that he's known for all of eternity as a member of the Godhead, as a member of the Trinity, all of that is lost to him in this moment. The reason that he is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is because in that very moment, God is rejecting him. He's turning his back on him. He's refusing to acknowledge him. Jesus is losing God, and as a result, he's unraveling both in his body and in his soul in this moment. He's deteriorating, not only physically, but psychologically here. 
as a result. Now, the question is, why is this happening? It's happening because your judgment day and my judgment day is coming down on Jesus here. He's taking your judgment for your sins and the forsakenness by God that you deserve because of your sins. He's taking that so that you never have to be forsaken by God. Listen to me now. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you may feel forsaken in the same way that I have felt forsaken, even though I wasn't being forsaken. You may may feel forsaken right now. But while feelings are real, they are not always true. And this feeling of forsakenness that you have is not true. You have not been abandoned by God. You are not alone. You can stop looking inward and trying to figure out which sin caused God to allow whatever it is that has happened to you and that has caused him to abandon you. That's, none of that's true. In fact, you may be in the middle of a very difficult situation that your sin got you into, but you need to know that God didn't cause all of this to happen. It happened. It's the consequences of your sin. But you need to know that God is as with you now in this low moment as he's ever been in your best moments. And the reason that you could stop all of the navel-gazing about your sins is because the judgment for all of your sins in the past, in the present, in the future has come down on Jesus in this moment. And he is being forsaken so that you never have to be forsaken. Your situation, whatever it is, Whatever the situation you're in is right now, whatever the pain that has come into your life, whatever whatever it is that you're going through, it's not because God is judging you and you're not being forsaken. Why? Because Jesus was forsaken. You never have to be forsaken. I'd like for you to repeat that with me. Would you just say this? Because Jesus was forsaken, I never have to be forsaken. Because Jesus was forsaken, In this moment, you never have to be forsaken. Now, I'm going to tell you something, that that feeling of forsakenness won't just go away immediately. This isn't like a Harry Potter incantation or something that you just say it once and something magically happens. It's a truth that you will never be forsaken. If you've believed in Christ, you will never be forsaken, never, ever. No matter what it is that you're going through, you're not going through it alone. It hasn't happened because God is judging you. It has happened perhaps for some other reason. But in order for this to become real, this idea that you haven't been forsaken, in order for that to become real, like in your emotions, as real as it is true, you have to, you've got to work the gospel deeply into your psyche. And I think that the only way that the gospel becomes experiential to us is when in your lowest moments, like when you feel abandoned and alone by God, In those lowest moments, repeatedly, every time you feel forsaken, day after day after day after month after month after year after year, you preach the gospel back to yourself. See, we don't don't preach the gospel to ourselves enough. You may uh, have believed in the gospel at some point in the past, but uh, what most people do is they leave it in their past. Well, you can't do that. You have to bring the gospel into your present experience, and you have to preach it to yourself over and over and over and over when you feel your best and when you feel your worst. And over time, hear me now, over time, that truth 
will become very real to you. Not at first. It's going to be hard work at first. You're going to say something. You're not going to feel it. You're going to preach the gospel. It's not going to feel like it's true. But eventually, you will work the truth in deeply to your soul, and it will begin to feel as real as it is real. Because Jesus is forsaken, you never have to be forsaken if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You never have to be forsaken. You never will be forsaken. Whatever it is that you're going through, no matter what you feel, you will never be forsaken because Jesus was forsaken in this moment on the cross. Okay, that's the cross. Let's talk about, I want to talk about the curtain. Mark tells us in verse 38 that after Jesus breathed his last breath, he says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, uh, up until this very moment, all of Israel's worship of God was done at a, a temple. Now, the question is, why did they need a temple? Okay, why did they have to have a temple in the first place? You may not realize this, but every civilization, every culture in history, up until recently, had temples or shrines or some equivalent. And the reason that every culture had a temple or a shrine or something like it was because every civilization and every culture until our present time has always believed two things. First, that there is another world, a supernatural world. And then second, that there is some kind of barrier between them and that supernatural world. Like there was a gap that needed to be bridged, like a chasm or a barrier that needed a door cut through it. So Israel needed a temple, one, because there is a supernatural transcendent reality. That's one reason. The temple is where God dwelt. But they also needed a temple because the temple demonstrated that there is a way through the barriers uh, to God. Now, let me, let me just explain what I mean by that. We're going to put a picture of the temple up here. Uh, on the screen. See that? That's like, I think that's the second uh, temple. And um, if you notice, there is a, I've got this cool, I've never had a pointer before, and I've always wanted a pointer, and I got a pointer. And it's really great because I can point people out. <laughs> like, like that guy, he's sleeping right there. Uh, I'm kidding you. Okay, so you got this temple, and, and here is the courtyard. This is an outer courtyard. Pretty much anybody could be in the courtyard. But you see back here, this is a place, this is what is called the holy place, the holy place. And if you walked in those doors in the holy place, you would see that uh, there's, you know, there's all sorts of stuff in there. There's a place that the priests could wash, and there's, you know, there's, there's candles, there's all, all this stuff in there. Um, but then inside of that, at the very heart of the heart, the inner sanctum of the temple was this place called the Holy of Holies. And we're going to show that for, to you too. The Holy of Holies. And uh, that's me in 30 years right there. No, uh, I'm kidding you. This veil separated what, the outer part of the holy place from what's behind it, which is the Holy of Holies. Now, something you need to know is that this veil, this veil is... 60 inches long, uh, third, oh, let's see, maybe it's, yeah, 60 inches long, 30, no, that's not right, 60, let me look at my notes here, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and you want to know how thick it was? Good question, Craig. Four inches thick. 
It's four inches thick. Now, that's important. Keep that in mind. Four inches thick. Okay? It's four inches thick. Now, if you went back into the book of Exodus and you studied how God instructed Moses to build the first temple, God tells Moses to start from inside the Holy of Holies. So he starts from the inner sanctum, and then he, and then he works his way out. And the whole way out, there are these, like as he's working his way out, there are all these multiple barriers that are established between him and God. You know, you got that veil, you've got curtains, you've got altars, you've got basins for washings, you've got all of these things. But at the same time that there are all these barriers to God, it's abundantly clear that God is communicating through the temple and how it's constructed that he is very deliberately opening a way into his presence. But, but, like, it's not any old way. Like, so, so he's saying, he said, you know, build it from the inside out. There's all these barriers, but I'm making a way for you to be in. But it's not any old way. You can't just sashay into the presence of God any old way you want. In fact, the, the only person allowed in that uh, Holy of Holies was uh, the high priest. One person in Israel could go back there into that Holy of Holies. Only one person, the high priest. And, and listen to this. He had to tie a rope around his ankle with a bell on it when he went in to the Holy of Holies, so that if he did something wrong in his worship and died while he was back there, they could, dra- they could drag his body out. They'd know that he died because the bells weren't ringing. And they could drag his body out because no one else was allowed in the Holy of Holies. So God is saying in the temple that there is a way through all of these barriers, but it's a very specific, very particular way. It's not general. And so when Jesus breathes his last breath outside of the city of Jerusalem, Mark tells us, a miracle happens in the temple inside of Jerusalem. That four-inch thick veil is miraculously torn in two from top to bottom. Why? Because the very specific way through the barriers to God is Jesus. That's what the temple always taught. The very specific way through the barriers to God is Jesus. And now that Jesus has died, the way to God is open for everyone. Now, what's the significance of that for you? It's this. When the veil was ripped, it was God's way of saying, this is the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. Now, anyone can connect with me. Anyone can see me. Not just the high priest. Anyone. And then to underscore that, who was the first person to believe after that veil is ripped? Who's the first person to believe? Verse 39. A Roman centurion. Not a Jewish person. A Gentile. And not just any Gentile. A man who had crucified Jesus. He wasn't a religious leader. He wasn't even a moral man. This was a battle-hearted campaigner who had no reason to be sympathetic toward Jesus. And what does he say? Verse 39, he says, Surely this man was the Son of God. Now, you need to understand something. We covered this some time ago. Some of you may remember this. Some of you may not. That phrase, the Son of God, uh, that was a phrase that Caesar used to refer to himself. He called himself the Son of God. Okay. The emperor of Rome. Now, do you understand the significance of what this centurion soldier is doing? When he says, surely this man 
is the Son of God. He's taking his own life in his hands because he's saying Caesar is not the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And for those of you who've been with us from the very first of this long study of the book of Mark, way back uh, last year when we began it, you may remember that the very first book of the book of Mark, excuse me, the very first verse of the book of Mark begins with that very appellation. Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. This is for Mark, this moment is for Mark, the climax of the entire book. The first man to believe after the veil was split wasn't a religious man, wasn't a holy man. He was a pretty rough dude. And the point of that is that no matter who you are this morning, Jew or Gentile, moral, immoral, rich or poor, religious or irreligious, had an abortion, not had an abortion, same-sex attracted or straight, ex-con or a policeman, sex worker or a virgin, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, wherever you are, the way to God is open to you through Jesus' death on the cross. And if you look at him on the cross... Your life can be changed as much as this centurion's life was changed in that moment. Do you understand all that this centurion had to go through in that, in that one moment to make this change? His whole life had been about uh, serving and obeying Caesar. His whole life. He knows he's taking his life in his hands. And yet when he sees Jesus on the cross and when he sees him die his last breath, this centurion makes all of those changes instantly. And says, surely this man, not Caesar, who I've been serving all of my life, is the Son of God. The way is open for everyone, including you. No matter what you're in today, no matter what you've been in yesterday, no matter what you do in the future. You may be the most moral person in this room, but you still need a Savior. And you need to know that the way to God is open for everybody. Okay, so we talked about the cry, we talked about the curtain. I want to end with this. I want to talk about the darkness. Every one of the four gospel writers goes to great lengths to tell us that all of the events of Jesus' death, uh, the whole process, happens in the dark. The betrayal happens in the dark. The denial happens in the dark. The kangaroo court that they put Jesus through, all of that happened at night too. And now we get to the actual moment of Jesus' death, and an inexplicable, mysterious, thick darkness comes down. Mark says in verse 33, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Now, what is the significance of this darkness? Some of you may remember, if you, if you know your Bibles, some of you may uh, remember back in the Old Testament about how God brought um, plagues onto Egypt and to Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt. He brought these plagues on them to free his people from slavery, right? And I don't know if you remember this or not, but the next to last plague was a plague of darkness. Moses describes it as a darkness that could be felt and that it lasted for three days. Nobody could see anyone nor could they move about, Moses says. Now, if you were to track all of the plagues that came on Egypt, you would see that what was happening was that the world around Pharaoh was beginning to disintegrate. 
In fact, what you see happening in those plagues is a reversal of the order of the events of creation. So like if you were working backward in the creation account in the first chapter of Genesis, you'd be able to track these plagues. And if you got all the way back to the second verse, the next to last verse, if you're walking backwards, the next to last verse in the first chapter of Genesis, you know what the next to the last verse says? It says this, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep. And so what's happening in these plagues is that, is that creation is being dismantled. Okay? It's all disintegrating. Immediately after that darkness, the very last plague that comes on Egypt in which is, is, is one in which every firstborn child in Egypt will die unless the parents have the blood of a sacrificed lamb on the doorsteps. Death, you see, is the ultimate disintegration. And this is the plague, that firstborn child thing. That's the plague that finally causes Pharaoh to free the Israelites. I don't know if you know this, but they continue, the, the Jewish people continue to this day to celebrate that night in a remembrance that is called the Passover. And so here we are in Mark chapter 15. The Jewish people just happen to be celebrating the Passover. All of them have come to Jerusalem to celebrate it. Hundreds of thousands of them are in Jerusalem now. The next to last plague, darkness, just happens to cover the whole land, just as it did on the first Passover. And being sacrificed on a Roman cross is the one who just happened to refer to himself as the Lamb of God, shedding his blood and slowly becoming unraveled physically, psychologically. He is disintegrating to the point of death. Working backwards again in the book of Genesis to the last verse. Again, if you're working backwards, the last verse would be Genesis 1.1. And it says, in the beginning, God created But here on the cross in this moment, the maker is becoming unmade. What's happening? Well, the message of the plagues, you see, was that the refusal to worship God, to build one's life around uh, something other than God, to go your own way, always results in disintegration. It happens to nations. It happens to people. It happens to families. It always results in disintegration. To be free of God always results in darkness and death and chaos. And even though Jesus' whole life was an act of perfect obedience to the Father, ours is not. From the very beginning, we have wanted to be left alone by God. We've wanted to be autonomous. We've wanted to decide right and wrong for ourselves. We build our lives around everything but Him. And so, as a result of that, we deserve judgment. We deserve darkness. We deserve to disintegrate, to be forsaken by the Father, to be left alone to ourselves. But, instead of inflicting the horrors of darkness and uncreation on sinners, God becomes a man. And he bears those things himself. He takes the judgment. Who has ever heard of a God like this? You know, in all of human history, in every religion, the gods always have to be appeased. But in this, 
In Christianity, in the gospel, what's different about it from every world religion is that God appeases himself. He comes down. He's, he takes the punishment for sinners. And just as the firstborn of the Israelites were saved by the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their homes, anyone, even a centurion, can be saved by the blood of the Lamb of God on the doorposts of your heart. I don't know why you're here this morning. Some of you may, maybe like you came on the arm of a friend. Like maybe you haven't ever been in church. Maybe you haven't been in church in a long time. Maybe you were scared when you came in that like all the lights would go off or something bad would happen here. I want you to know that the gospel is for you. Believe in the Lamb of God, Jesus, whose blood was shed for you. And when you believe, his blood is put on the doorposts of your heart. And as a result, you never have to disintegrate. You never have to become unraveled. You never die. Jesus says you never die. Oh, yeah, your body, your body will die, but you will never die because of what he did on the cross for you. He was the sacrifice to end every sacrifice. Like, you don't need to sacrifice anymore. I said this a few weeks ago. Some of you, when you, like when you blow it in some significant way, you decide to yourself, you go, oh, man, you know what? I'm going to pay for that. I'm going I'm I'm to I'm redeem my own sin. I'm going uh, to go work for God in some way. I'm going to do all these things that will uh, impress God and that it will make everything okay. And God is, like, not interested in any of that. This was the sacrifice that I wanted. Your sacrifices mean nothing to me. It was Jesus' sacrifice that opened the door for everyone. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? If you have never come to a place where you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never come to a place where you have believed in him, Today, in the privacy of your heart, would be a good day to do that, to put your belief in him. He is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Your goodness is not a sacrifice that God will accept. Only the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever you've been, whatever you've done, know this. That the way to God is open. It's not just any way. It's a very specific way. And that specific way is the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you believe in him this morning just in the privacy of your seat? For those of you who have believed in the past, would you just make a commitment to yourself that you're going to start preaching the gospel to yourself over and over and over all the time when you feel forsaken, when you don't feel forsaken, when you feel loved, when you don't feel loved, when you feel alone, when you feel like God is right there with you, would you just keep preaching the gospel to yourself that it's not about you, it's not about your goodness, it's not about your sin, it's about what Jesus did on the cross. That's why you are never forsaken. And Lord Jesus Christ, would you impress this upon 
our hearts, our souls, our psyches, would you make this something as we continue to preach the gospel to ourselves, would you make this very real to us? As real to us in our experience as it is in truth. We are standing on holy ground as we read this passage, Lord, forgive me for not being capable of drawing all of the truths of this out for these people this morning. Uh, I am not capable. I'm not a worthy servant. But Lord Jesus, I pray that in spite of my uh, weakness, in spite of my fallibility, I pray that you would take these truths and drive them home in the lives of the people in this room this morning. And Lord, as we're transformed, I pray that the city of Evansville would be transformed as we take this same gospel out to everyone that we know in every place that we are in our lives. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and that we pray.